This call is being recorded. We will share the recording after the event on our website, youreyes.org, and via email. Again, all of the recordings from today's call and previous calls are available at y-o-u-r-e-y-e-s as in Sam, dot o-r-g. Our calls have timestamps for you to navigate to the speakers and topics that interest you. This forum is both a place to learn and a place to share. We welcome you to share what you are experiencing and feeling, as well as any ideas you have to overcome unique challenges we are facing at this time. We are happy to provide as much useful information as we can today, but please keep in mind, this call is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We encourage you to communicate with your medical providers regarding any personal medical questions. Housekeeping for today's meeting. All participants are initially muted in an effort to reduce background noise on the call. To unmute yourself on the call, dial star star, also referred to as the asterisk key on your telephone's keypad. If you are using a smartphone, you must have your screen unlocked. The meeting software uses audible alerts to indicate the participant is muted or unmuted. Some phones have self-mute options. This option will not unmute yourself from the call, so please refrain from using it. Only star star will unmute yourself. We will remute you once you are completed with your question or comment. There is a limited amount of time on the call today, and with the number of people dialed in, we may not be able to address every question or concern. We are hosting this call monthly and are interested in hearing from you. If you do not have an opportunity to ask your question today, please contact us at 301-951 4444 or via email at events at your eyes.org. Again, that's 301-951-4444 or at events, that's E-V-E-N-T-S-S and Sam, at Y-O-U-R-E-Y-E-S dot O-R-G. If you have questions for next month, send them to us through these outlets so that we can be prepared. Okay. We know that there are a few vendor representatives on today's call. Welcome. If you have information to share that you may believe to be helpful for individuals on this call, please contact our Low Vision Learning Center at 301 9514444 and we are happy to distribute via this outlet. I'd like to hand it off to Sean Curry, POB's senior programs manager, who will take the time from here. Thank you, Nick. Good morning, everyone, and thank you again for joining us for our town hall. As Nick mentioned, recordings of the town hall and previous town hall recordings can be found on our website, youreyes.org. 
I have just a couple announcements before we get started. As a reminder, town hall calls continue monthly on the third Wednesday of the month at 11 a.m. So our next town hall is scheduled for Wednesday, March 17th. Again, I will say it once again. Our next town hall is Wednesday, March 17th. Yes, that is St. Patrick's Day. Our updated low vision resource guidebook, Your Eyes and Low Vision, is still available both in large print paperback or on our website, youreyes.org. The Low Vision team has compiled over 100 pages of resources and services helpful for those with low vision and their friends and family. And most of the services and resources are free as well. If you're interested in receiving a large print guidebook, call our hotline, 301-951-4444, or email us at events at youreyes.org. And we welcome you to share this information with anyone who may be interested. This may include your loved ones and friends and family, community centers you attend, or even your doctor offices. The POB Low Vision Learning Center continues our remote operations. The resource and information hotline, however, is still active weekdays, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. The center and hotline is an excellent resource and information navigator. Our resource specialist, Natesh and Kara, can help find resources and technology helpful for you. The phone number for the center is 301-951-4444. And Tara and Nitesh are both on the call today and available to answer your question. If you or someone you know would like to be added to our newsletter mailing list, again, you can give our hotline a call or email us at events at youreyes.org. And we still have free low vision face masks available to those with a vision impairment. These cloth face masks are a great way to mask up while also raising awareness of low vision in the community. We encourage you to share this as well. And again, to sign up, you can give our hotline a call. The month of February is both Age-Related Macular Degeneration, or AMD, Awareness Month and Low Vision Awareness Month. AMD is the leading cause of vision loss for older Americans and a major cause of low vision. You're going to learn about both of these more from our guests today, and I for one am excited to learn more. Finally, February is also National Library Lovers Month. Enjoying a good book, though, could be difficult with vision loss. However, there are other ways to enjoy your book other than just using your eyes. The Talking Books program is run by the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled at the Library of Congress. This program allows you to receive or download books in an audio format from their library for free. This is available through their Talking Book machine with cartridges or through the BARD app, B-A-R-D. And again, this is a free way to still enjoy the books you would like to read. At this time, I would like to hand off to our moderator, Dr. Suleiman Alibi. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, and good morning to everyone. Welcome back. 
I do look forward to our monthly chats, and I hope everyone is keeping safe and well. Hopefully by now, many of you will have also have received your COVID vaccines. Even if you have, please keep up all those mitigation measures, wearing your mask, staying socially distanced from those outside your own family, and try to limit your time in enclosed spaces with lots of people. As Sean mentioned, this month of February is both Age-Related Macular Degeneration Awareness Month and Low Vision Awareness Month. It gives me great pleasure, therefore, today to introduce our guest speaker. I've known him for many years and have a lot of admiration and respect for him. Dr. Stephen Pappas, Jr. is a well-renowned retina specialist in the DMV. In fact, his father, Dr. Pappas Sr., was one of the first fellowship-trained retina specialists in the Washington, D.C. region. After joining his father's practice in 1995, Dr. Pappas Jr. went on to found his own practice in 2001, which is the Center for Retinal Diseases and Surgery. Dr. Pappas earned his medical degree from George Washington University and completed his ophthalmology residency at the Washington Hospital Center. He has served as chairman of the ophthalmology surgery unit at Suburban Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, and as well has been recognized as one of Washington's top doctors by the Washington Magazine, Washingtonian Magazine, I'm sorry, in 2010 and 2012. Dr. Pappas participates in many local community outreach programs, such as those sponsored by the Prevention of Blindness Society, and also serves as trustee for two not-for-profit organizations. This morning, he's going to talk about macular degeneration. And given our success with the interview format from the last town hall meeting, what we'll do is I'll first ask him to speak and then maybe ask him some questions and then we can invite everybody else to bring on their questions too. So without further ado, Dr. Pappas, are you on the line? I am, can everybody hear me? We can hear you, the floor is yours. Great, Suleiman, thank you so much uh, for that kind introduction. And it's uh, always a pleasure uh, to have an opportunity to speak to a POB audience. As you've mentioned, I've had the opportunity to do this many times over the past 25 years, and I always welcome the opportunity. It's always nice to engage with uh, pa known patients, other members of the community, and uh, I know this is a rather different time for us, but nonetheless, I think it still is a great opportunity to share information and to give people an opportunity to learn more about their condition. So you very eloquently put forth how this is a, a month of February where we acknowledge both Macular Degeneration Month and Low Vision Awareness Month. And I think my goal, and as we chatted about uh, yesterday, is to try to place age-related macular degeneration in kind of that functional realm. How do we, how do we put it in in a context that really people that don't people who don't understand medicine and ophthalmology and eye care can kind of take something home with them to kind of understand <clears throat> excuse me to kind of understand 
a visual function, we kind of have to understand how does the nervous system work? There are five senses in the nervous system. Of course, those are one of those, of course, as I say, which we're mainly going to be talking about today. But if we really think about it, one of my mentors uh, emphasized to me that we don't really see with our eyes, we see with our brain. And that's very important because all of the five senses are essentially used to provide sensory information to the brain. But the brain, it's translated in a way, to, in a language that the brain can understand. The brain essentially processes little electric signals. And that's the language that the brain understands. The brain doesn't really understand eyesight or smell per se as we understand it. We recognize it as those senses. But the signals that the brain receives are really similar signals from all five senses. So that's a very important concept to kind of understand. So whether it's smell, taste, touch, it doesn't really matter uh, with that. So since we're talking about vision, we have to talk about the eye and to understand macular degeneration. We have to understand a little bit about the structure of the eye. And most of us know we have under normal circumstances two eyes. We have uh, an opening, a clear opening in the front of the eye, which is both the cornea and the lens. This is basically a, like a fancy telescope that focuses light on the back of the eye. And for everything to, for us to see clearly, we have to have a clear view through that telescopic lens. There's also a jelly sac called vitreous that has to be clear. And then by the time the light is properly focused on the retina, that is where the action is. The retina is a many-layered tissue that has a capacity to absorb light. And by absorbing light, that light signal is then changed to the electrical signal that I spoke about. And that's that electrical signal that goes to the brain, letting us understand and process what we see. To understand this a little bit better, and this is important to understand it in the context of macular degeneration, the retina rests on a carpet of pigmented cells. And there are millions of these tiny vision cells and they're specifically arranged in a way perfectly on this carpet of cells. So when light comes in and is absorbed by these vision cells, a special light and chemical reaction occurs, changing that light signal into the electrical signal which travels along the retina, allowing us to see. For this process to happen, a lot of things have to work perfectly. So you have to have the inner structures of the retina have to be healthy, the vision cells have to be healthy, and that carpet of pigmented cells under the retina have to be healthy. And that also means that their respective blood supplies have to be healthy. So all of this relates to causes of the disease, what happens as a result of injury due to the disease, and the eye's response and the healing response that we'll see with this. Macular degeneration is essentially a genetic disease. It's an age-related, it's a spectrum of it's almost like really what we would call a macular dystrophy. If you've heard of, let's say, muscular dystrophy, it's in a sense no different from that. 
you have to pretty much inherit the genes to have the disease. But there are so many genes that cause this disease that there's a very wide spectrum of severity. Some people have an exceedingly mild form of disease. Others will have a very severe form, and it all depends. And it also depends on environmental factors, such as exposure to sunlight and ultraviolet uh, damage, tobacco use, which promotes inflammation, lack of oxygen, and similar problems that can also trigger the expression of these diseases, uh, in the genes rather. Uh, it can also be involved. There's also, there are also dietary factors that we're now learning. A lot of certain foods that we eat are pro-inflammatory and they encourage inflammatory damage. And these are the same inflammatory damage that occurs that we see in heart disease. So it's not surprising that heart disease and macular degeneration have commonly kept the same company. So all of these factors play in the expression of disease. What's important in mild forms of dry macular degeneration is that you get these deposits which will develop on this carpet of pigmented cells that I told you about. And these deposits are kind of a reflection of, a, of, the, of the vision cells not processing the materials the right way. And over time, these deposits can accumulate. There can be local damage to that uh, carpet of pigment itself to the point where it loses its pigment by itself. And then there's damage and then there's inflammation. And all of these factors may lead to a gradual dry degenerative change over time where the pigmented cells wither away. And when they wither away, the vision cells they support wither away. And therefore, when light comes into the eye, it can't be processed properly by those vision cells. And that's what leads to blurred spots and blind spots in some patients who have the exclusive dry form of the disease. The bad news is we don't have good treatments as yet to really prevent or reverse this. The good news is it only happens in about 10% of patients. So that means 90% of patients who have dry macular degeneration will still likely maintain pretty good functional vision for, the, for most of their lives. So, and obviously leading a, a heart-healthy lifestyle and not smoking and avoiding ultraviolet exposure and those similar kinds of risk reduction measures are very helpful to mitigate your risk for vision loss as you live, as you live your life. Wet macular degeneration, thankfully, is also a relatively rare event in the spectrum of people who have macular degeneration. Like the advanced form of dry macular degeneration, which occurs only 10% of the time, thankfully only about 10% of all comers who have macular degeneration will go on to develop the more dreaded wet form of macular degeneration. So you'll ask, well, what is that? I'll return you back to that pigment, that carpet, that, pig, that carpet of pigmented cells that is supported by a blood supply underneath it. When the damage becomes more severe, that barrier that, that is underneath that pigmented cells and the blood supply that serves it 
gets damaged, those blood vessels can then grow under the retina. When this happens, rather than the gradual vision loss that some people may experience with dry macular degeneration occurs, a more rapid form of vision loss may develop. This may be, a, this may be due to either bleeding, the accumulation of fluid and or swelling underneath or within the retina, or the accumulation of fatty material. All of these are constituents within blood vessels. So normally they're supposed to stay within blood vessels, but when the, the disease occurs, this will, these, the, these constituents will leave the blood, the blood vessels and then go into the retina itself. And when this happens, it's much more toxic to this carpet of pigmented cells and to the vision cells. This is where we get much more rapid, severe, an explosive vision loss that can lead to very large, accelerated, fast blind spots that develop. Now, thankfully, I know Dr. Chu addressed this in her talk last month, so I'm not going to go there with this, um, but there are many treatments that we've had over the years. I'm going to really separate them in two types, and this is where I'm going to get to really more the functional part of our talk here. The uh, tr traditionally, before we had the more modern medicines, which are these injectable medicines that were first uh, that were really first used in 2005, uh, before we had that, we had a kind of a uh, used to treat macular degeneration with something called laser, and laser was a really hot laser. We would have to create almost a blind spot here to cauterize the blood vessels. But the problem with this treatment was it was very, it was non-selective, meaning we couldn't target certain parts of the retina to avoid damage. We would have to damage the entire part of the retina that was affected by the disease. Sometimes this was an area outside the center of vision where the macula is. Other times it was dead center. Obviously not an ideal circumstance. And so when, when I told you earlier that 10% of patients who develop mac wet macular degeneration, uh, well, who developed it, it ended up that before we had these modern treatments, only about 90% of those patients still lost a lot of vision. So that was what drove the, uh, the research uh, into these newer medicines that were allowing us to preserve the vision. What's notable and important, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Alibi will, uh, will maybe I'll bring this out and maybe some future questions, is that it's the difference in certain kinds of blind spots that really impacts how people function. And so if you have a blind spot that's dead center versus off to the side, your brain will have a different way of adapting to that. In a like fashion, sometimes smoldering disease, in other words, disease that's not totally arrested could also have its own set of challenges. And we can talk about that uh, a little bit later as well. But suffice to say is that you have these blind spots which may occur, which were commonly occur with the laser treatment. But with the advent of the newer injectable treatments, we were able to very frequently reverse the vision loss with this. So you could stabilize or reverse this in about 90% of patients, provided that you get to the patient sooner. So the one take-home message here is, A, 
macular degeneration for most 90% of people is not going to be a major sight-threatening event. When we hear the term and the diagnosis, it does strike fear. But statistically speaking, 90% of all comers are going to do just fine, no matter what you do with this. What we're concerned about is really the 10% of patients who may who are at risk. Now, the good news, as I mentioned, with regard to wet macular degeneration is that 90% of the, that 10% actually can be treatable if you get people at an early stage. And that's the good news. So that means if you think about it, 90% of that 10% means that really 1% are probably at risk for losing vision loss severely from wet disease if you can get everybody screened and, and plugged in the right way, which I think is extraordinary because now you've really taken a very scary disease, which it was back before 2005, and you've turned it into a manageable, treatable chronic disease as long as patients stay compliant with their visits and their treatments. And this is tremendous news. And it's not, I don't think it's, I don't think this kind of good news is emphasized enough. And I think part of the reasons is, is that we try to make things better and better. And I think the, so this is a very important message. And it's gotten so good to the fact before patients were not able, were, were, couldn't see. But now the problem is that patients, isn't that the patients can't see. The patients are complaining, well, doctor, why do I have to see you so often? <laughs> why do I have to have these injections so often? And that's, that actually is a really a reflection of our success. And so really the complaints are not about I can't see as much. The complaints are the treatments are so often. <clears throat> and so now the advances in treatment, which I'm sure Dr. Chu discussed uh, last month or the last time, uh, are really more dedicated to trying to reduce the burden and the frequency of treatment. So uh, with that, Suleiman, that's kind of my little uh, mm -hmm. uh, spiel here, so to speak. I certainly open the floor to you. If, you. if you'd like to probe some of what I spoke about a little bit, we can move forward if that's all right. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Actually, that was a beautiful explanation of macular degeneration and what goes on. So. I, I'm going to ask you some questions that patients ask me often and see if you can clarify some of these things. The first question, of course, is, am I going to go blind? And this is that confusion between blindness and legal blindness, I think, which is what often people are referring to when they say macular degeneration is the leading cause of blindness in the United States. I was wondering if you could help just clarify a little bit there. Of course, and, and, and that's exactly the same question that I will frequently get from my patients. And we really have to understand, I, I almost would, I try to actually challenge the patient. When someone asks me about blind, what I'll actually do is I will say, let me show you what blind is. <laughs> and I will take both of my hands and cuff them over the patient's both eyes. And I will tell them, that is blindness, all black. And then I'll pull back and then I'll say, so I think the worst case scenario here is you'll probably get a blind spot, which is not blindness. 
and I'll typically put my fist up. And it's very concrete with folks because I think that's what people really need to understand these pictures. So I'll put a fist between myself and the patient centered on their vision, and I'll say, can you see my face? The answer is no. So you, but you should be able to see around everything else around there. And so when I describe that, that really, that, and I tell them, in, in most situations, that's the worst case scenario. And there are some exceptions. But by and large, that's your worst case scenario. And in doing so, we then talk about other functional aspects of that. But the good news about that is even that type of, that type of uh, outcome is still becoming rarer and rarer in my practice as long as I can get folks early. So we can really, and I think the idea of transitioning this from a a, a sight-threatening disease to a chronic treatable disease is very important in terms of kind of bridging a patient's functionality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. That helps. And And just, again, to emphasize to our listeners is your peripheral vision is not affected and your ability to see everything around you, objects, chairs, whatever, that's not impacted. It's the details, the fine details, reading, recognizing faces, or seeing a street sign. It's really that's what's impacted by these blind spots that Dr. Pappas is referring to. And in low vision rehabilitation, we're really helping you understand how to circumvent those blind spots and get around them in a way using magnification, lighting, and contrast. So, Dr. Pappas. If I may add. You know, yeah, please. If I may add something too, and I and I, and I think I neglected to really in, include this detail, just so patient, so just so patients and the, the audience is not confused as much. Sometimes there's confusion between the macula and the retina, and I wanted to just bring that out there a little bit. So when we talk about the macula, the macula is a part of the retina, and specifically, the macula is the central part of the retina which, as Dr. Alibi said, is responsible for our high-resolution visual activity, reading, driving, threading a needle, that type of fine work. It's not the rest of the peripheral growth. There are kind of two types of vision, and there's this fine vision that Dr. Alibi referred to, and then there's your peripheral vision. You have two sets of this, and it is macular generation, which for the most part if it's going to threaten anything, will threaten the central vision. Only in exceedingly rare circumstances does it impact the peripheral vision. So we really don't talk about that too much. Yeah, I think that clarification is very helpful and very useful. So, Dr. Pappas, early in your talk, you discussed how vision is something we do in our brain and not necessarily something we do in our eyeball itself. And I know many people with macular degeneration experience some strange phenomena where they'll sometimes say, you know, I'm seeing things um, since I've developed macular degeneration. And um, I wonder if you could help us understand this effect a little bit better because many many people describe this um, this phenomena of seeing things which which they know are not really there, but they are experiencing these strange phenomena. 
I, I agree. It's a very common finding. And, the, and the, the, the good news about this is, well, many patients who have experienced some level of moderate to severe vision loss, and in my experience, it doesn't have to be both eyes. It can just, just sometimes be even one eye. But more commonly, it does happen with both eyes. For some reason, the, the brain processes things in a way that it's, maybe it's not getting its stimulation properly. But there is a condition that Dr. Alibi is referring to called Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's been a longstanding recognized condition for many decades, poorly understood, and but the but it, its its main features are patients will sometimes see bright colors, lights, and typically forms. Sometimes people will actually call these formed visual hallucinations. People will describe actual forms. So I've heard the spectrum, as I'm sure Dr. Alibi has. I've heard patients describing gremlins coming out of TV sets, picket fences beautiful colored flowers, all kinds of flashing lights, children playing, the whole, the whole gamut. But you'll notice everything I described to you there was a form, it's a, or geometric forms even. And a lot of that, whenever I hear a patient talk about geometric forms and those types of, uh, those types of hallucinations, that puts it all in the brain. It's not in the eye. So that your eye is not doing this to you. It's the brain that's trying to make sense out of the damaged retina and the information that it's not properly getting from the damaged retina. We don't really understand why this happens, but the good news about this is, is you're not going crazy. And I think in my experience, this is actually an underreported phenomenon. I think many people who are in uh, other um, group living, assisted living, and senior living circumstances when they engage with their peers may actually sometimes not report this because they're afraid that people might think that they're going crazy, that they're losing their memory. And the fact is they're not. And I think that, and, and that most people will just out of embarrassment not talk about it, but they may suffer in silence. And I tell patients, don't do that. It's okay to express it. And, and I'll kind of jokingly tell them, Sometimes with people who have cognitive difficulties, I don't really get worried about the people that admit to what they're seeing. It's the people that don't admit to their seeing that I have more concerns about. But mm -hmm. uh, but all but all but if you're if you admit to them, it's okay, and and you should feel comfortable to talk about it. And this way, you, by talking about it, I think you can allay a lot of your fear. And you should share this with your uh, retina specialist, or you should share it with a low vision specialist such as Dr. Alibi. And I think when you share it that way, that brings more context and understanding. And with that understanding, hopefully more comfort. Mm -hmm. And also it's not necessarily an ominous sign that things are getting worse, right? Sometimes people say, I've started to get these phenomena and now it means it's the beginning of the end, but that's not true, correct? That is exactly true. And sometimes people do get concerned that these symptoms, because they are neurologic, may represent a severe problem such as a stroke or that type of problem. And it, it's not a bad idea to, again, place the symptoms in the right context 
typically patients with Charles Bonnet syndrome and these hallucinations, the hallucinations are just simply that. They're a visual phenomenon by itself, and they're typically not accompanied by any other symptoms. They're visual by themselves. And so we would only get concerned about other associated neurologic problems if there were problems with speech or balance or other kinds of or other kinds of uh, symptoms that one might associate perhaps with a stroke or something like that because we're talking about patients in the same age group who have a possible uh, possible comorbidity or or illness that could accompany mm-hmm. this so but most of the time you don't normally need a a big neurologic workup for this if you have the right context it can be taken care of but again if someone needs more comfort from that, you can always get yourself checked by your primary care physician or your neurologist just to make sure that nothing else is accompanying this. But by and large, uh, it is not a harmful event. That's good. That's reassuring to hear. Now, Dr. Pappas, this question may not necessarily just apply to people with macular degeneration, but maybe to other retina conditions too. The question I often get is that I'm now having to strain to use my eyes. I'm having to squint more, struggle more, work harder to see. Is that harmful to my retina? Am I making things worse? You know, typically we think if any other part of our body is injured, our muscle or our bones, our doctors tell us you should now rest, don't stress and strain the muscle, don't stress the bone, let it heal. And, um, you know, that's better for you. But in this case, when it comes to the eyes and the retina, even if we have conditions, whether it's macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy or retinitis pigmentosa, whatever the condition is, is it harmful when we tell patients it's okay to use your eyes to still read and watch TV or use a computer? Is that doing any harm? That's a wonderful question, and I will actually bounce it back to you after I'm finished, but what, and I'm curious if your experience has matched mine. Uh, my experience with this is that with patients who've had some level of visual impairment, I actually encourage them to use one or both eyes, whatever they can do, because one of the things that I've experienced, I've, I've had a lot of work with a specific type of visual field testing where we can map out a blurred spot, but also we can map out how the brain works around that given blurred spot or blind spot. And so, and I've learned a lot over time how those, how, how, how the brain uses that and sometimes will change and pick different parts of the retina. So in other words, mm-hmm. when we're born and our, when our macula is healthy, the brain will naturally use the center of the macula to fixate or to focus on. But when that Mm -hmm. area becomes damaged, what we'll see is the brain will find other areas in and around that area. It'll find the healthier area. And sometimes it will take, on different days, it may use different parts of the retina. And so sometimes patients will will have good days, then they'll have bad days. And when I've looked at that and I've seen that, change from visit to visit, I've actually been impressed by it. Well, I'll get a special scan on them and I'll see there's no real interval change 
in what's happening microscopically in the retina, yet the patient's noticing a difference. And so I've typically ascribed that to the brain trying to find and refine, if you will, that healthiest part to get the best focusing power it can. And that might change. And so therefore, to answer your question, I actually encourage patients to do that, to encourage this process, because it's really not really a conscious process that the brain uses in my experience. It's really an unconscious one. And we just find a way to refine those spots. And the more we, the more you engage visually, the more you're going to tap into that unconscious process to allow you to fixate and function and do those things. So mm-hmm. the counter cultural view is use the eyes, use the vision, do it as much as you possibly can because that's only going to, I think, condition your brain to be able to work effectively around these blind spots. I don't know what your experience is with that, but that's what I've seen. Yes, no, I I agree. And Dr. Pappas, your test, your micro-perimetry test that you do has often been very useful for me to understand how to guide my patients and teach them how to use the other parts of the retina a little bit outside the macula, sometimes within areas of the macula which are not affected, and to use those and capitalize on those parts to function better. So it is it is amazing. It's going back to what you said in the very beginning. Because we actually see in our brain, no matter what the clinical presentation is, and I'm sure you find this too, that some some patients clinically may look like they have very mild disease, but functionally they're having a very hard time adapting and seeing to do things, whereas sometimes patients may clinically present with very advanced disease, and yet I'm always amazed and surprised how well they're still able to do things. Now, that may mean they're using magnifiers or they've learned to look a certain way, but it doesn't always match, meaning what I see clinically doesn't always seem to match what they tell me functionally they're able to do. So obviously there's a huge role that each of us play in learning how to adapt to our vision and our vision changes. And that's what's enabling us to deal with these these different diseases of, of the eye and, and the changes that take place. I wonder, Dr. Pappas, if that's your experience too, that sometimes clinically you might look at somebody's eyes and think, well, they must be having a very hard time, and yet you're surprised when you talk to them as to how well they're doing, and then the vice versa case too. What's What's been your experience? Yeah, I think you can. I Sometimes uh, I am amazed at sometimes how someone who has a small blind spot can't navigate around it. And there's someone who's got a larger blind spot and they're just amazing. And I think that sometimes mm-hmm. though, it, de- it depends on also a lot of it is, is there, I think there's also some emotional wiring about this too. And, and, mm-hmm. and some people have a certain sense of motivation and resilience and really push themselves to do it. Other people maybe less so so there may be some component of that. Um, I think it's, I think it's still, quite frankly, a mystery with this. But I think what what your question brings out is how important the treatments we have today are. 
from the standpoint of minimizing blurred spots and blind spots, which enable uh, patients to navigate. It's easier to navigate typically around a small blind spot or blurred spot than it is a large one. And so that's mm -hmm. really what I believe the game changer is for all of these treatments. And I think that ultimately is really the take-home message for this. There are going to be some patients in whom it's a problem, but by and large, the motivation of patients and the fact that now, compared to 25 years ago, by way of example, the proportion of patients that are in my practice who are over 90 years old compared to 25 years ago is extraordinary. And the corresponding mm -hmm. levels of functionality and good health and mobility and all of those things, it's extraordinary. I, I didn't, you know, 25 years ago, the number of men who were over 90 in my practice was a fraction. And now it's amazing how many men over 90 I had who are functional and, and, and engaged like this. Before it was mostly just women. And, and I just think that that health is a testimony. And it adds, I think, to the, to the motivation that will allow patients more easily moving forward to be able to navigate. So there's a there's kind of a synergy that's taking place between their general health, the treatments that we have, and then the triangulation with using low vision uh, specialists such as yourself to really kind of bring that all together. And so I think it's actually, it's all very positive uh, is, is really for me to take home message. Right, no, I agree, I agree. And, it, and it's true, we are, Modern medicine has done amazing things and our lifespans have increased. And it's not just that people are living to be older, but like you've said, they are healthier and their minds are sharp and um, they're still leading very productive lives. So I, I often tell my 90-year-olds, 90 is not old anymore because there are so many people are at 90. So that doesn't, at least in our practices, doesn't feel that old anymore. But so I'm going to ask one more question, then I'm, I'm going to definitely open up the floor for other questions. And I'm going to ask this question because it comes up a lot. And people say, well, modern medicine is so good. Look, I've replaced my hip. I've got a new knee. My hearing aids work well. I had a heart procedure done. I'm heart valve is pumping better than it ever was before. So how come we can put a man on the moon, but we can't do much more for the eyes? We don't have any replacement parts, any, any fixes there? What, what do you say to patients who ask you that, Dr. Pappas? Well, I think it's a great question, and it actually goes back to the original premise at the beginning of the talk, and that is visual function is a brain function. So it's not the the way the the way the eye specifically is structured. It's even different from the ear. So let's. I think the closest analogy you can use is with the ear. And so uh, with that, you've got these special cochlear implants, and you can do these. Uh, and, and and you have you'll see patients who have the special magnetic clips uh, in the in the back of their head, and that allow them to hear. And it's a real miracle. What's happening there is that the ear itself is being bypassed, mm -hmm. essentially. And so that's allowing the sound to come through and it's bypassing the ear and going straight to the brain. So to your point, there is <clears throat> technology which is advancing rapidly. 
<clears throat> that's going to allow so-called, just like there's artificial hearing, we're looking at artificial vision. And it is moving along in a way, but still the technology here, it's very, it's still very cumbersome. The hardware is still, it's difficult surgery to do. It takes a while to, it takes a while to manage uh, this type of, uh, this type of thing. And so it's very hard to, uh, as the technology advances, we will be able to, we will be able to reach a point where uh, that maybe the artificial vision will work. And, and we're getting there with that. But the challenge is you can't, some people will say transplants, retinal transplants and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that, as I mentioned, the retinal structure is microscopically with vision cells, but part of the retina developed as one part of the body and the inner part of the retina developed as part of the brain. And so the problem with macular degeneration is the part of the retina that was not part of the brain is what's damaged. Mm -hmm. so, what, so what the technology is taking advantage of, what the retinal chips are doing is actually bypassing the vision cells which are damaged. And so it's using that ability to take, to capture the light and travel along the nerve to allow the patient to see. So that's where that's happening. But then you have the transplants themselves where people are putting in and they're trying to transplant actual cells to try to, re to, to regrow them and to do that. But that has its own biological challenges and there's their immune system problems to deal with and that type of thing. So it's, uh, that's why it's very hard because you have this integration of the eye and the brain that is rather unique in the human body. So those are some of the structural challenges that are there. And of course, there's the immune system for rejection and things like that, that have historically and traditionally been a problem. They're working on ways of doing that. If you were to ask me where I think this is going to go, I think we're going to go the route of artificial vision. I think that technology and nanotechnology and those types of technologies are going to really offer the greatest hope for reaching uh, the the goal of your question. Mm. Well, that's exciting. That's really it's an exciting thought, and and it applies to all eye conditions, not necessarily just macular degeneration. So we can keep our fingers crossed and hope for that. Sean, I'd like you to now um, explain to everybody how they can unmute themselves and ask questions and. Dr. Pappas, are you still able to stay on for a few few minutes I am. and take yes. a few questions? Sure. Thank sure. you. Thank you. Sean, go ahead. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Pappas. I know I learned a lot. I have about a page and a half of notes. It was really, really great. Um, so for everyone on the call to unmute yourself, you're going to want to press the star button. So that's the asterisk key on your keyboard twice. So star, star. And you'll be prompted and it'll tell you that you're unmuted. Go ahead. Anybody has a question? Doctors, thank you very much. This is John Guzek. I know I should know this, but it might be helpful for everybody else on the call. What is the difference between macular degeneration and Stargardt's disease? Very good question. So as I mentioned to you, age-related 
specifically the disease we were talking about was age-related macular degeneration. And as I said, that's also a genetic, there are many genes that cause it. There are at least 50 plus genes that cause it. Stargardt's disease is a specific disease with just really one gene that causes it. It typically expresses itself early in, it, the severe forms can express itself early in life. So it's a it's they're they're both inherited diseases, but typically Stargardt's happens at a much younger age and more uniformly leads to uh, loss of vision, which is why we're looking at uh, genetic treatments for this disease as well, as opposed to macular degeneration, which is a much more challenging disease biologically because there are so many different genes that cause it. Typically, people who have People who have uh, macular degeneration, just like heart disease, for example, the environment plays much more of a role in diseases caused by many genes, whereas in gene diseases like Stargardt's, the environment does not play much of a role. It's a single gene, and once it gets triggered, it goes. So there's a little bit of a difference in that regard. I hope I addressed that question. Thank you. Thank you, John. That was a good question. Anybody else with a question? Uh, good morning. Yes. Good morning. Go ahead. Good. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Um, this is a fabulous presentation. Um, I'd like to get a recording of it actually and rebroadcast it. Um, what I'm wondering is, as you say that, you're, you're, I'm wondering, is there a, any kind of a, a test to determine if someone is more likely to develop macular degeneration? Very good question. You know, a lot of patients will come in and they'll say, well, I'm not sure I got my 23andMe test. <laughs> I do not recommend that. Uh, and so I, don't, I think right now, the, and, and, here, and this is a perfect example, someone might actually have the gene, but they may never express the disease or may express it much, much later on in life. It may even be a non-issue for them. So I'm not a real fan of that myself for lots of reasons. None the least of which is I, I think it creates a lot of anxiety because you're not because we don't really have a great treatment to quote prevent the disease. Now, if there is some amazing capacity that we can take find those specific genes that somebody has and we can take those and turn them off, even then you still don't know because I think where you're in a you're kind of in a in a dangerous area there with uh, and we're going into a different realm here with uh, with with gene editing and things like that. So. And the thing is, there are other factors outside of genes that turn on genes. And so it's such a complex piece there. You want to be really, really careful. Uh, what I think is really important is uh, making sure that you, if you're over 50, if you think you had a family history of macular degeneration, you should see get a good examination, get a good retinal examination from your comprehensive ophthalmologist. Because really, and, and 
And but by the time most of us are over 50, we have some other kind of health issue that manifests. It's a good idea to see someone every one or two years. Get a good retinal examination. Make sure everything is fine. And sometimes nowadays you can maybe get some some good pictures. Now are there, the imaging quality is extraordinary. Before we just had really very simple black and white and color pictures we would take of the retina. But now we have other kinds of imaging that are tremendous. That's tremendous. We have scans of the retina that can really look at things that I think are very very sensitive and they can pick up a lot of these types of things that you talk about. What we didn't touch on too is also this, this eye-brain connection with regard to Alzheimer's and that type of thing. And there is some emerging information that suggests that some of these special scans that we're using for the retina may also be helpful in detecting uh, patients who have maybe early, who are at risk for early cognitive changes as it relates to different types of dementia. That was outside the scope of our discussion, but it does touch on a little bit of your idea of screening. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Very good question. Anybody else have a burning question out there? Dr. Pappas, we had somebody email in a question. This is Sean Curry. So the question was, uh, this person has an activity <laughs> And they were curious if there's any sort of things that they should look for or any tests they can do at home to, you know, kind of self-monitor their vision levels. And be, Is there any warning signs where they need to go see medical attention um, rapidly? There are a couple of – there are a number of strategies. There's one system out there called 4C system, which I'm sure uh, Dr. Alibi is familiar with. I'm not a real big, I've never been a user of it. It's out there. Um, it sometimes will pick up some things and you, it's, a, it's a home system that's linked electronically to a center and they can pick up little, then you'll do testing and you, and you test yourself every day with this. And it has a way of picking up some maybe early abnormalities I have had an opportunity to see some patients who had said abnormalities, and I looked at them, and it, it sometimes overcalls things, and I'm not so sure how useful that particular system is. It has been shown in studies to be have some benefit, but from a practical standpoint, I'm not so sure uh, how beneficial it is. I actually go a little more conventional and traditional, and I tell my patients, to really do the following, and I really emphasize single eye monitoring. So in other words, use whatever your normal reading material is. It doesn't matter whether it's a Kindle, an iPad, a desktop, standard newspaper, or magazine print, whatever your medium is, put your regular reading glasses on, whatever you would need to optimally do that activity. And at the beginning of said activity, Cover each eye separately. Make sure you can navigate across the font, whatever that font is. Look for uh, blurred spots, blind spots. Make sure that the font is straight. Normally, you would expect the line of typewritten line to be straight. If it starts having a dip in it or the, or the letters or figures become jumbled in one eye versus the other, that should prompt you to reach out to your eye care uh, specialist to say, I think I noticed a recent problem. I think doing so a few times a week 
goes a long way at detecting these problems, it, but it's the monocular monitoring that makes the difference. And the reason that the case is it gets back to our original theme here of the brain. The brain filters out unwanted and threatening types of problems. So if you have something brewing in one eye, the brain will automatically filter in many, in many conditions and prefer and default to the non-effected eye, and it'll filter it out. If you don't break that pattern of binocularity, you might actually miss that. So I think the true benefit of any of these activities is less the technology and more the fact of maintaining a level of awareness uh, between one eye versus both eyes. That is where I think the benefit lies. I think the electronic platform is less so. That said, I think moving forward, there are some existing technologies out there that may be um, cell phone based that may allow patients to be able to do these activities, but also allow these activities to then be electronically sent and monitored. These, these technologies and apps are under development and underway, and they may in fact become more commonplace, especially given our COVID environment like this. I think a lot of you who are listening have, have had an, an ability to have a telehealth visit with your doctor. Well, in ophthalmology, you really can't do that right now because these imaging platforms aren't there uh, for the doctors at this time to be able to engage that way. That's an excellent question, though. Yeah, thank you. That That is a good question. And I agree, Dr. Pappas, that I tend to say the same to patients is look at your reading material and see if you can notice a difference, but do each eye separately so that one isn't masking the other. And, and that's the amazing thing about having two eyes and two maculas is oftentimes something can be happening in one macula and the other eye is masking anything going on. And patients are often surprised that when they cover their good eye, suddenly the eye the other eye doesn't see anywhere near as well and and they weren't totally unaware of it, un, unaware of that so um, monocular screening or monitoring i think you're right does does work very very effectively um, any other questions out there anybody with a burning question you've been wanting to ask dr Pappas? When one sees a retina position and they say that um, you have atrophy, um, so there's, is there nothing that you can do, like with muscle atrophy, how you could work a muscle? Is there nothing that you could do with the eye muscle? Or <clears throat> I'm not certain exactly what's atrophy. That's a very good question. You know, atrophy, it depends on the part of the body you're talking about. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about a muscle, that's one thing. And sometimes you can do physical therapy to work on the atrophy of the muscle to build it up. So you won't, so let's say if, you, if you're talking about a muscle, you may have lost muscle cells. But what you can do with a muscle that you can't do with the retina is you can exercise the remaining muscle cells and those individual muscle cells will get bigger. So they mm -hmm. can make up a little bit of the, of the physical space and loss that one might recognize. In right. the retina, it's different. 
and an atrophy has different forms and it depends on the part of the retina that is impacted. So for example, we've been talking today about the macula. So we're talking about an area really of the vision cells and the vision cell layer, which is oriented, oriented in the outer part of the retina. And, the, that, that, and that's the area that really gets atrophied here. When I talk about atrophy, atrophy means loss of tissue. <clears throat> it's the loss of the vision cells. Now, in other patients who, let's say, have glaucoma, the vision cells aren't impacted. Instead, there are a group of cells in the inner retina and the nerve fibers that are atrophied, and they get damaged. That's a different type of atrophy. Sadly, mm -hmm. in both circumstances, you can't replace those areas and you can't quote mm -hmm. exercise those right. to see better. But the next best thing is what the brain does. And we did mention that in our talk, which is there may be damage and a blind spot in that area of atrophy, whether it's atrophy due to glaucoma in the nerve or whether it's atrophy or a damaged scar tissue in the macula that creates a blind spot. So the, the adjustment there is the brain is finding a more healthy area there to use instead. So that's the real adjustment that happens. So there is a little bit of an analogy there. So I think we've taught, it's called just like you would have physical therapy and rehabilitation for your muscle. It's exact, this is exactly what Dr. Alibi does. He does low vision rehabilitation. And it's the same way. And so we're really, what he's really trying to do is figure out what your functional needs are, matching those functional needs, finding out where the blind spot is, and trying to find a way to bridge that functionality for you. So in a sense, that's how we're kind of making the adjustment. So it's analogous, but of course not the same. Right. And stem cell research, is that no longer being pursued? in the medical community? Oh, stem cell research is being, it's an active uh, part of research and it's, it, it, it represents, it's exciting, but I think there are challenges with this. There are challenges on how to deliver the stem cells, where to deliver the stem cells, uh, and the method by which they're doing it, and then what happens after the stem cells are there. There, there, there are so many variables in this I think they'll get there. I'm just, from my standpoint, I just, I'm just thinking that this melding between mechanics and man is really where I think this is going to happen. You're seeing it with prosthetic devices, and I think you're going to eventually see the same pattern probably win out in vision. I'm not, uh -huh. I'm not, I'm not I'm have a, I don't have a crystal ball. But I'm just simply right. saying, I think that the biological challenges of stem cells alone, uh, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it, there are just so many hurdles with this. Uh, I just think that the mechanical piece to this, that technology and how to meld mechanics with human tissue and that, bio, that biomechanical engineering piece to this, I think offers more functional promise for patients moving forward. Uh, than um, I think just the sole biologic approach. Okay. Hello. Okay. This Thank is you. this is Davida Lures. Hopefully, I have um, unmuted myself. Um, I sure. just wanted to to chime in. Um, I am a volunteer. I, I have RP. 
Um, I love participating in the POB programs, and I'm a volunteer with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And within stem, the um, stem cell question, I just wanted to let everybody know on Saturday, March 20th, um, the Foundation's National Free Webinar Series is continuing, um, and March 20th at noon, it will be on stem cells. Um, May will be, uh, the third Saturday in May will be clinical trials. Um, the third Saturday in July will be on low vision resources. So if anybody is interested in that stem cell information, um, also if you visit the website fightingblindness.org, um, the, any of the past sessions, just like POB also keeps the recording. Um, so does FFB, and there was one on January 23rd on gene therapy. Um, so you can find the information there, or you can get in touch with me, both Sean and Dr. Alibi know how to do that, and I'd be happy to send you the links. Um, or the email, a save the date did go out for March 20th, um, and I'd um, be happy to help connect anybody that's interested. Thank you, Davina. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Thank you for sharing I, that. I, it, it, it's it's amazing, really. I mean, the, the, the genetic. I mean, I just want to just say here, Slim, on the, the 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 genetic progress here has been nothing short of extraordinary, and I and and I think that uh, there's still a long way to go uh, with, with 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 all of this. And as we move forward, we're we we're, we're probably be looking at some form of blended approach to this. Is what's where it's going to probably be. Ultimately, so uh, it's it's really we live in a very exciting time. No doubt, no doubt, and I know that there's a big um, ophthalmology and eye care meeting coming up, Arvo, and um, that's where I think a lot of new things are also presented and discussed, and 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 uh, I, I believe this year they're virtual, so that. Uh, I'm not sure that patients can log into that, Dr. Pappas, but I, I know that's probably one of the things you do participate in yourself. I haven't done Arvo in many, many years. I was uh, I was fairly uh, I was I was a member of Arvo many years ago. My earlier part of my career, um, I've just really gone away from more of the basic science piece. I'm much more I'm just so clinically oriented at this point. There's only so much bandwidth one has. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of at, at at this point I really dedicated more towards that and I and I'm I'm happy more I'm more I'm in the in the clinical there's some clinical research I'll I'll certainly participate in that but on the on the basic science side I'm not uh, I'm I'm not really on on the on the bench side mm -hmm. at all so mm -hmm. I'm I'm really entirely clinical. Yeah. Now I know there's sort of an overwhelming amount of information that's available nowadays. And of course, we all refer to Dr. Google for everything. So um, I often have patients bring me things that they found on the internet. And, uh, you know, I had not even read about it or heard about it. Um, and it, it's sort of the amount of information being put out there in such a rapid fashion makes it very, very difficult actually to keep up with things. And at the same time, some of the information is probably not pertinent it's 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 not relevant and sometimes it's not it's not even going to lead to anything but 
there are enough people putting information out there that you know everybody is is grasping at all this and saying well look here somebody said something about stem cells fixing this so it it, it becomes sort of the thing to talk about well as with so. everything context is very important and uh mm -hmm. we really have to be mindful of all of that so there's excitement and then there's you have to re then there's the reality of the hurdles that I talked about before and really addressing those to, to make, to make something a reality that way. So there's uh, it, 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 that, that, and that's, that's really the eternal challenge for us. Mm -hmm. Any more questions out there? Anybody have any questions? Do Dr. Pappas is a retina specialist, so you can ask a question not necessarily related to macular degeneration as well. Now we'll open it up a little bit more. So if you have any more general questions, you can go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, this, one, uh, this is Maury. I am confused because I have been diagnosed uh, with written, uh, RP um, uh, in my country, in Cameroon. When I came here, they say RP too. I went to NIH. They say RP, they, but there was telling that my case in unique is unique because in my family nobody has it but i think that um i have macular degeneration because my uh, uh, my uh, central uh, my central side is zero i see nothing when i look straight but the peripheral yes i can see something and it is uh, stable. I have uh, it started, um, I can say 20 years ago, but the peripheral is, I think that is the same, but the central is zero. I see nothing when I look straight and I have problem in the night. So I'm, I'm confused. When I I listen to you, I think that I have macular degeneration, but they say that it's RP. Well, I don't, I'm not certain. Hard to say. I think what you, if you if you lost your central vision, then you know you, you may have not necessarily RP, but there are different types of hereditary retinal degenerations, and you probably have one of the more uncommon ones um, and so that's what that sounds like you sound very young to me so um, well i will be 50 in a couple of days like i said you sound very young to me <laughs> <laughs> so if you had if you had if you had this been a more age-related type of problem we'd be talking about something in your 70s or 80s in that situation, the fact that you are losing vision in your 30s speaks to the yes. genetic nature of this, and that was a problem. Mm -hmm. okay. And I think many times, many conditions are lumped under one group, and many things are called retinitis pigmentosa um, just because it's a, it's a way to give it a some form of diagnosis, but it may not be the typical retinitis pigmentosa, mm -hmm. which you're thinking of where you lose peripheral vision. 
And mm -hmm. people with retinitis pigmentosa eventually lose central vision too. So sometimes you're given this general name and diagnosis, okay. but it may fall under that family of retinite type of retinitis pigmentosa, but it doesn't mean it's exact, like even Dr. Papa said in, in macular degeneration. There are variations, um, mm -hmm. and even though the typical forms are the ones we've discussed today, some people can have some sort of variations, but we still call them macular degeneration. Am I right, Dr. Pappas? That is correct, and it's, it is kind of, to your point, a misnomer. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions out there? Anybody have any general questions now? We're almost at the end of our time, um, but go ahead. Anybody have any questions, then go ahead. All right. Well, Hello, this is William from Go PCR ahead, William. I just had a quick question. I've had several of our clients here at RSA say that they're taking certain over-the-counter vitamins or some kind of supplements that uh, the claim is that they will, you know, slow down vision loss or even improve their vision. I just wanted to see what... Uh, are there any types of these things available that uh, over-the-counter that aren't prescribed by an actual doctor? Or is this something that is just designed to prey on people's fear of vision loss? If, to your point, I would be cautious about certain claims about improvement in vision. I mean, the age-related eye disease study had two arms, and it looked at it, it, it looked at the use of uh, of zinc, vitamin C, vitamin E, and these phytopigments called uh, lutein and zeaxanthin. And before that, it was vitamin A, beta carotene, and their protective effect on the retina. And as I mentioned earlier about macular degeneration, we do know that there are certain aspects of our diet uh, that may lead to certain types of inflammatory or oxidative damage that could, as I said, represent so-called epigenetic factors. These are factors outside of genes or that can trigger genes to express themselves. So there's a way, in a sense, for us to knowingly or unknowingly kind of modulate the effect of uh, these of, of the of our the activity of these genes, we can't really do this really in a refined way. Uh, but that's kind of the idea, and this is where we're going. And that was where the age-related eye disease study, and that was, I think, the spirit of the study to do that. And it successfully did show that you could have you could lower you could experience a moderate um, a, a moderate yeah, reduction I in vision loss. Make sure that Hello? I didn't feel like I. Hello. Oh, a moderate, uh, moderate degree of vision loss. So it's kind of akin to a statin to reduce your risk for uh, getting uh, advancement of your heart disease. That's how. That's the analogy that I use for patients. Just like a statin won't 100% prevent you from getting a heart attack, nor will the ARED supplementation 
uh, that you would get, let's say, in a, in a, a, um, a supplement like Preservision, 100% protect you from converting to wet macular degeneration. So it's, this, it's an analogous re risk reduction in a group of people. You are not able to predict that with any high certainty uh, customizably to a particular patient. It only looked at patients in a group. In like fashion, these other uh, uh, vitamins and things like that, they're not regulated. You just have to be very, very cautious with the claims there. And the other thing too, to be careful, is you have to know what are these other, uh, what are these other nutrients that are there and, and also be cognizant of uh, what kinds of unrecognized interactions may exist with the current medicine that you're on. So I guess the, the net is buyer beware and make sure that you are speaking with your uh, primary care physician or cardiologist uh, before you start going on such a regimen. Mm -hmm. Bill, thank you. That was a good question and that often comes up a lot as well. If there are no other questions, I know Sean has some final announcements to make, and we're almost at our end anyway. But Dr. Pappas, I really want to thank you and appreciate how how useful it's been to have you here today and discuss macular degeneration with us. It's been really interesting and fascinating at the same time, and I appreciate you taking time out of your busy practice to speak to us today, and hopefully we can have you again at some other time in the future. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming today. And well, Sean, I'm going pleasure. to hand back to you. It's my pleasure. Thank Go you ahead, all very Dr. much for your thoughtful questions. Now, thank you very much all for your very thoughtful questions. It's always a pleasure uh, to, to, to speak to your audience. So I wish everyone a good day and to stay healthy and safe. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Sean, I'm going to hand back to you now. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you, Dr. Pappas, again. This was really, really great. Um, and I hope we can have another one here in the future at some point. Um, so I just have just a couple final announcements for everyone on the call. First, a uh, recording of this call will be available later this afternoon on our website, yourize.org. So please stay tuned. It does take us a little bit of time for it to download and to upload. So later this afternoon, it'll be up in there, up and running. Um, finally, we have one event this Friday at 1 o'clock. Um, we will be having a webinar presentation to providing a Talking Books program update. And it's going to be specific towards Alexandria Talking Books. However, the Talking Books program is pretty similar based um, all around. It just depends on who you, which uh, county you have to talk to. Um, but stay tuned, they'll be giving some really great information and we'll be giving a POB update as well. So if you're interested in attending and learning more about the Talking Books program, uh, again, it'll be this Friday, February 19th at 1 o'clock, and you can give our hotline a call to get sign-on information. Otherwise, I just want to thank everyone again for attending today, and I look forward to seeing you all again next month. Please stay safe, stay warm. I know there's snow coming. Um, and enjoy the next month. Thank you. Thank you.